0: Well, good morning again to you, church family. Great to see you here this morning. If you are a guest here with us, we invite you to stick six with us, stick six weeks, so we can get to know you, you get to know us a little bit more. Uh, one of our main passions we have in 2023 is that we as a church would grow in breadth and in depth in our prayer life. And so this summer we're going through the series, Praying the Bible. Praying the Bible. And this series idea uh, came from a book by Donald Whitney. Encourage you to get that book. It's a great book entitled what the series is entitled, Praying the Bible. It's a great series, and as he starts uh, the book, he asks a question that hopefully kind of gets our minds going as we go into the series. And it says basically this, I'll try to sum up his words, but he says, If prayer is talking to the God of all creation, the most beautiful, holy, majestic one of everything, and we are bringing to him our greatest needs and the concerns of our daily life, then why is it sometimes that our minds seem to wonder? And why is it sometimes that we kind of drift into thinking, man, I'm kind of of bored right now. Is this what God hoped for and designed when he created us and made a way for us to interact and talk with him? Certainly not. But we feel that sometimes, right? And sometimes that word kind of creeps up in our minds, man, maybe this is just kind of boring. And so sadly, we think of ourselves as like, less than Christian or kind of a second-rate Christian because we should not be bored by talking to the creator of the ends of the earth. So in this book, as he kind of starts it off, he says he believes that maybe the reason that we feel like this or we feel like we don't want to pray or that prayer is boring is because we tend to say the same old things in the same old way. Same old things in the same old way. And after you do that about 10,000 times, it starts to become old. And so this series is meant to help us to think more creatively about how we pray and what we pray for. To align our prayers with God's prayers so they become fresh and new to us. And so I hope that this series cultivates that within your heart and my heart, but also the resource that you came in today and received, Five Ways to Pray for Your Church. This is another way for you to pray the Bible and grow in that aspect of praying the Bible. And this uh, book that you got, you can open it up or you can look on the screen here and you'll see this. But um, it's just five ways or five things to pray for. And what you see is you open up the book, each chapter starts with just a uh, title page. And underneath that, in kind of a smaller print, you find the Bible passage. Really encourage you to take that Bible passage for your own time with the Lord. Read it, kind of think about it for a little bit. And then turn to the next page after you've thought about that passage for a little bit. And look, and you'll find five points or five things to pray for your church based upon that passage. So they're taking God's word and putting it in very tangible ways that we can learn to pray according to God's word. So I hope this is a great resource for you. And the reason why we chose uh, praying the Bible because or praying for your church is ultimately this series has tons of things like this. You can pray for your spouse, pray for your family, pray for your neighborhoods. The list goes on. There's probably thirty different. Uh, books that are in this series of five ways to pray. But we chose to to five ways to pray for your church because if you guys remember, six months ago, we turned the year and we started this big focus on prayer. We had you fill out that survey. And in that survey, one of the weaknesses that, that we saw as a church is that we struggle to pray God's Word. Only about a third of us use God's Word to kind of guide our prayer time. And then praying for our church, what we found is about 55% of our church family only pray for our church one time a week or no times a week. And this isn't meant to shame you or to guilt you. God has called us as pastors and elders to equip you to do what God has called you to do. And so I hope through this book that we gave you today, as well as this series that we're going through, it equips you to faithfully pray God's word and to pray for his church. We, we need your prayers. Our church needs your prayers. God calls us to pray for the church. Uh, He even says it's his bride. So let's love it and pray for it. Well, all right, so Psalm 22 is where we're at today as we start the series, Praying the Bible. And we're looking at a prayer that comes from David's life in Psalm 22, but is echoed and repeated in the life of Christ. So this whole idea of praying the Bible didn't come from this book by Don Whitney, nor my own mind. What we find as we turn the pages of scripture, Jesus prayed the word, and we'll see next week, we'll look at the church, the early church used God's word to guide their prayer life. So let's start looking at verse 1. We'll actually read the entirety of this passage. It's long, so hold on, stay focused, and listen to what God's word would say to you today, beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 22. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh God, I cry by day, but I do not hear an answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy. You're enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted; they trusted in you, delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. (laughs) He trusts in the Lord? Then let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you in my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me, and strong bulls of Ashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a raving and roaring lion. And I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and is melted within my chest. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, and they, and a companion of evildoers encircles me, and they have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones, and they stare and gloat over me. And they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off, Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Now, I want to pause right in the middle of verse 21 because there's a whole shift. There's a hinge that happens in the middle of verse 21 that nobody knows exactly what happened as David is writing out this psalm, but it moves through despair and suffering and pain. And then, right in the middle of verse 21, something changes something happens. And he says this, You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. And in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All the offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. eat and worship before him come and bow down even the one who could not keep himself alive prosperity shall serve him it shall be told of the lord to the coming generation they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to the people yet unborn that he has done it this is the word of the lord pray with me this morning Lord, we thank you that you are a God who hears. You hear when we pray out to you. Even in the midst of our pain and our suffering, you're near. We praise you not just for being the God who hears, Lord, but being the God who also feels. You can relate to us and our struggles, for you have struggled too. You went to the cross To bear our sin on our behalf. And we're grateful that you did. We're grateful that you did not waste your affliction, but you used it to help us understand how we should pray in dark times. So Lord, help us understand how better to pray to you today and through this series in the months to come. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Psalm 22 is repeated again by Jesus as he hangs On the cross, both Matthew and Mark quote the beginning of Psalm 22, but it's very likely that as Jesus hung on the cross, that he repeated from memory the entirety of Psalm 22. You see, Psalm 22 was taught to young Jewish boys, and they would memorize it. They would know it, something they would cling to in the midst of their suffering. And Jesus, as he hangs on the cross, cries out in prayer to God the Father. And I believe it's with intentionality. Jesus could have prayed a number of passages in the Old Testament, a number of them. And we'll actually see later on that we'll get to other passages in the Psalms that talk about suffering and pain and are used as prayers through them. But Jesus doesn't choose Psalm 41 or 42 or 43. He doesn't pray any of the other laments while he hangs on the cross. He specifically lifts up Psalm 22. I believe there's at least three reasons why Jesus does that. And first is this, Jesus prays Psalm 22 on the cross to show us where to turn in the midst of our suffering. To show us where to turn in the midst of our suffering. You see, our our, our pain should push us to the Lord. Our prayers should be directed to God in our suffering. And David, the author of psalm 22 the david we've been looking in in this prophet priest and king series that we just finished up last week he pins these words and jesus repeats them on the cross why because it was a time of suffering for david and we find it a time of suffering for christ but look at what david writes in verse one and what christ repeats on the cross in verse one my god my god Why have you forsaken me? See, it doesn't say, God, God, why have you forsaken me? He says, my God, my God. There in his suffering, he still sets his eyes to look to the Lord. And he makes it personal. This is his God. The God in whom he has a relationship with. The God that he interacts with. This is my God. And Jesus, the second person on the Trinity, cries out to God the Father, and he says, My Father, my God, who art in heaven. You see, this pain and the suffering shouldn't cause us to run from God, but run to God. For he is still our God. And as David writes that, his mind continues to think about who that God is. In verses 3 and verse 4, he says, Our God is a holy God. In his pain and his suffering, he remembers that God is holy. He is set apart. He's majestic. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is worthy of praise, it tells us. He's worthy of praise. The people of Israel praise the Lord. You would think that in pain and suffering, you'd be like, well, is God still holy? Is God still worthy of my praise and the pain? And in this prayer, he says, yes. Jesus thinks about this. God is still holy. He is still praiseworthy, even in the pain, and even maybe more so as Christ bears the pain of our sin on the cross. And as David continues in Psalm 22, he remembers who our God is. He's not just holy. He's not just praiseworthy. He is a redeemer. He's a savior. He's a rescuer. Did you catch that? In verses 4 and 5, he's thinking about the past, How our God rescued in amazing ways the people who cried out and prayed to him. And he's remembering God has done this in the past and God is still working in the present. But as he starts to compare his life and his current situation to the history of how God's worked in the past, he starts to get stressed. He starts to struggle. There's a tension that happens between his faith and his suffering. You see, if there's a God and He's holy, there's a God who listens, then why does it feel like He's so far away from me? He starts to think, if you are holy and you do hear, then why do you seem to be absent? Maybe it's me. Maybe it's me. And that's what you see in verse 6. He's like, God, I know that you're a somebody, right, in verses 4 and 5. But in verse 6, but I feel like a worm. I feel like below the bottom. I feel like I am like a worm in the dust. That's what I feel like in my suffering and in my pain. God, I know that you're a somebody, but I feel like I am a nobody. You see, when we go through times of pain and suffering, We sometimes don't lean into prayer because just the silence seems so difficult. The silence of God in our pain can oftentimes be deafening to us. But even worse, what you find for David and what you find for Christ on the cross where it feels like God is absent or silent, there are people that are speaking. Did you notice that? God seems silent But in verse 7, you hear people speaking. They're making fun of the man of God. They're making fun of David. They make fun of Christ on the cross. They're mocking him. And they're not mocking him because of his personality. They're not mocking him because of his dress or his appearance. It says that they're mocking him for the God he believes in. they are like, do you believe in this God that rescues you believe in this God that gives you hope and freedom and forgiveness? Then let Him save you. Man, that's a tough place to be. That's a different kind of suffering. It's a different kind of suffering. And right there, in this weighty suffering, in verse 11, he calls out to God, be not far from me. Be not far from me. The thing I find so interesting is that David isn't asking for an explanation for his suffering. You know that we can can make it through suffering not having our questions answered. We can. We can make it through without having answers. Now what do I mean by that? What I mean is that when we suffer, we have questions, certainly. Why? Why is this happening? And why is this happening to me? Why does this have to happen now? Why in this season of my life? When we suffer, we have tons of questions. We can make it through without those answers. What we can't make it without is companionship. What we can't make it without is suffering alone. You can't make it without friendship. You can't. So what David is crying out for is the presence of God. We desperately need the presence of God. And what David realized and what Christ is trying to get us to see from the cross is what we need more than the answer to our questions is a nearness from the Lord. God, if you will just be near to me. If there's no one else that can help, then I'll be fine as long as you are near. Trouble's near. I need you to be closer than the trouble. And the beauty behind this is Christianity. Christianity is the only religion on the face of the earth that says there's a God who will be your companion in suffering. There's a God who suffered so he knows how to relate to you and even comfort you through your suffering. That's the beauty of Christianity. That's why David cries out, be not far from me. That's why Jesus cries out on the cross. It seems so difficult. Why do I seem to be forsaken? This whole language of my God and be not far from me. This is very personal language. We we don't throw this language out to just anybody, right? We don't use language like be not far from me to our banker. (laughs) We don't use that kind of language, right? We don't use language, be not far from me, from our teachers or our educators, right? We don't say, just be near to me now. We don't do that. We don't even do that with extended family. We don't look at our aunts or our uncles or cousins and just say, oh, be not far from me, right? We don't use that kind of language. We just don't. What do we use that language with? Those that are closest to us. We might, we might use that language with a, with a spouse, I'll be not far from me. Maybe with a child that is now an adult that we've walked through seasons of life, maybe we use that language, but it's not common. And This is very personal language. David's wanting the Lord to be closer than a spouse. Jesus on the cross is wanting his heavenly Father to be near to him. <laughs> if you haven't noticed yet, if you haven't noticed already, Jesus is showing us in Psalm 22 that we need God's presence in our pain. He's the only one that can give us peace through pain. Only one. And if we could look through the biblical worldview that we find in the Bible, if we could look through the eyes of God for a second, we would realize that the greatest pain, the greatest suffering that you and I can ever experience is being separated from God. That is the worst pain and worst suffering. That's why Jesus is crying out from the cross. Jesus was forsaken for our sins so that we would never have to be. Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's screaming it because he realizes that he is bearing the weight of our sin, the sin that separates us from God. Jesus is mocked on the cross. He has thorns driven into his head. He has nails driven into his hands and his feet. And yet he remains quiet through all of that. You see, the scripture doesn't say he voices anything through that. And yet here as he hangs on the cross, he does not cry out from the cross, my hands, my hands, my feet, my feet, or my head, my head. No, he cries out, my God, my God. He's experiencing something infinitely beyond the worst suffering that we could ever experience. You see, becoming sin on our behalf was the greatest pain for Christ. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That we might come into his presence. That we could approach the throne of grace in prayer with confidence because of what Christ has done. Christ was forsaken so that we could have hope and trust that we never would be. And there's multiple passages that continue through Scripture to highlight this truth that in our suffering and in our pain, we run to our God knowing that He is there. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20 says, Jesus speaking, I am with you always, always, even until the end of age. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He'll never do it. Romans chapter 8, Paul writes and says, For I am sure, or I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God In Christ Jesus our Lord. Think about this passage. Let this truth sink into your mind. When Paul writes this, this is basically what he's saying. When he says, neither death nor life, no good health nor bad health diagnosis can keep you from God. No angels nor rulers, no political party nor spiritual power can keep you separated from God because of what Christ has done. Nor things present, no matter how painful they are, no matter how much you suffer in the future, can separate you from God. You can't do it. Why? Because Jesus has bridged that gap. Because Jesus was forsaken on the cross. And he prays this prayer that our minds would be directed back to these truths in Psalm 22. <laughs> Praying God's word is powerful. It's powerful. It aligns our minds and our thoughts to who God is and what God is up to. Oh, that we would reflect what Christ has done for us on the cross as he prayed and reflect his prayer life. But that's not the only thing that Jesus is teaching us through his prayer on the cross. He's also praying on the cross and praying Psalm 22 to help us trust in God in our suffering. To grow our trust and our faith in God in our suffering. See, God is not out of control. Things are not spinning out of control and God's trying to hold it together and he can't quite do it. That's not what's happening. As Christ goes through the cross, it's not a a tragedy that he stumbled into. No, it was a purpose and it was a plan. Psalm 22 highlights that. Christ, as he prays, is probably reminding himself, even on the cross, this is the plan of God the Father. This is the plan to bring about salvation. You see... What we find in Psalm 22, some of these things may have happened in David's life. But scholars, as they've looked through, they're like, we don't know if every single one of these things that we find in kind of this middle section of Psalm 22 happened in David's life. What you find in the book of Acts in chapter 2 is that it's actually quoted that David was a, a bit of a prophet. Some of the things he spoke, he was speaking of Christ and the things that were to come. And so what you find in this passage is that this is written a thousand years before Christ set his feet here on Earth, a thousand years. Let that breadth of time settle on your mind for a second. That is four times the life of America, the country. We're about two hundred and fifty years old now, right? Four times the length of history of time of America. And during those thousand years, Christ was God was working, bringing to this point where Christ would give His life. And the detail that's, that's written in Psalm 22 is fascinating. I mean, things that are written here that people at that time would have been scratching their heads and not been able to fully understand. But it was all pointing to what Christ was going to do as he hung on the cross. And what's so amazing about this, to once again help us to understand and grasp the, the time of this, this would be like Vikings in history writing about the iPhone. And describing with detail how you would use an iPhone. You're going to have this little cube and you hold it up and it's got color in it. And you can swipe with your finger and you can learn information. And you can, you can do all these things. Like imagine finding a document written by the Vikings that's describing the iPhone that we carry in our pockets today, right? Some of these details, that's what it's like. Some of this prophecy, that's what you should feel and think about. The awe and the shock of that. You see in here it talks about that he would be poured out like water and his heart would be like wax. John chapter 19 tells us that when Christ hung on the cross and he died, they took a spear and they put it into his, high, into his side and his heart bled water and blood. This is a picture of a, being poured out like wax. Verse 15 of Psalm 22 says, his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth or to his jaws, that is, where Christ speaks from the cross, I thirst. I thirst. You see, he's got his hands pierced and his feet pierced in verse 16. See, the crucifixion wasn't even invented yet. It would be about another 700 years before the crucifixion would be invented, and this is 700 years prior to that that we're seeing Psalm 22 written. The Persians would invent it and the Romans would perfect it. It's a symbol of shame. And Jesus bears that shame and suffering on the cross so that we can find forgiveness. Verse 17 and 18, also quote what happened to Jesus at the cross. I can count my bones. He looks down. They've taken his clothes off of him. He can look down and see his ribs. He can see his bones. And they divide up his garments. They cast lots for it. And this is what the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, did for Christ. What Jesus, as he prays Psalm 22, is wanting us to think back to is that God's not out of control. prophesied of this. He, He had a purpose for this. He said this was going to happen. And when we feel like there's pain and suffering in our life that is out of control, we need to realize that God is still working. He's not absent in the pain, but he is working through it. There's someone behind all of this. You see, the The men and the women that were there at the cross where Jesus prayed Psalm 22, they would have memorized this psalm just like Jesus would have. And as Jesus quotes his prayer, their mind would have rushed back to these things and seen as Jesus is fulfilling all of this. You see, as we pray God's word, it reminds us of God's promises. It reminds us of who he is. And it grows our trust and our faith in him. He is a God that is working. As Jesus hangs on the cross, the greatest suffering that the world has ever known, God turns it for the greatest good that the world has ever known. Hold that, our trust would grow in the Lord through our suffering and our pain, and not cause us to retreat away from Him. But there's not just hope that God is our companion and He walks with us through our suffering. We have great hope in Psalm 22. That God will bring us out of that suffering and that pain. That there will be an end. And I believe that Christ is wanting us to see that as he prays us on the cross. He prays Psalm 22 to give us hope that there's an end to our suffering. There's an end to our suffering. As I was reading through Psalm 22, I paused and I made a point to say right here in the middle of verse 21 that there's a, there's a switch. Something completely different happens He's been talking about his pain and his suffering and then you see in the middle of verse 21 that he's been rescued. What? When did that happen? Beginning in verse 21, he's crying out for help and needing a salvation, and at the end of verse 21, salvation's arrived. He even uses the perfect tense of the verb rescued. It's finished. It's done. God has rescued. If you remember, the setting beforehand is that he's there in his pain and his suffering. And everybody is speaking ill of him and mocking him and making fun of him because of his beliefs. But here now, in verse 22, he's surrounded by a congregation of people praising the Lord who saves. Praising the Lord who has ended that suffering and that pain. You see, in verse 24, it reminds us, God has not overlooked our affliction. God has not forgotten our pain. It says that he hasn't despised those who are afflicted. Those of you that go through pain and suffering, you're like, God is just really a sadist. He loves making me feel terrible. No, that's not what the truth is. That's not the reality. God doesn't despise you and your suffering. He doesn't overlook those who are afflicted. Our hope now has come. He's come. God's word brings us to the promises that we need in this broken world. And I know that there's times that we feel like God's face is hidden from us. But look at the end of verse 24. Even through our pain and our sorrow and our suffering, God has not hidden his face. He's not hidden his face. He has heard our cry and salvation has come. Salvation has come. And it's come to to everyone. It says in verse 27, to all the ends of the earth, they will remember and turn to the Lord. And then he starts to hit all the different categories. In verse 29, he says, to all those who are prosperous, they're going to eat and enjoy worshiping the Lord. That is those who are wealthy, those who are rich, those who had all this prosperous, they too can receive the salvation of the Lord. End of verse 29 Hey, even to the one who couldn't keep himself alive. This is the one who was poor and needy and didn't have money to buy food, and he dies. Even the one who was poor on his deathbed, salvation can come. And then I love that we're included. We're included in this passage. Look at verse 31. They shall come, proclaim his righteousness to people yet unborn. We were not born in the time of chapter 22 of the Psalms. We were not born in the time that Christ hung on the cross and died for our sins. It's coming to us even who are not born, to the coming generation. How has this happened? How did the salvation come to us? Was because, man, we just prayed hard enough. We just worked hard enough. We were good enough. And so salvation came to us. No. Underline, circle, highlight, whatever you need to, to notice how verse 31 ends. This is how salvation came to us. He has done it. He has done it. How did all this happen? God brought it about. God rescued. God saved. God brought them out of their suffering and brought them into praise. God did it. This word of, of it is done or he has done it is what Christ quotes on the cross. It is finished. The work is done. When Christ says it is finished on the cross, as he finishes praying Psalm 22, he's not saying I am finished. I am suffering on the cross. And I have died. I am finished because we know that that wasn't the end for Christ. We know that he was not finished. Why? Because he went to the grave and he rose from the grave and he defeated death. It's not saying on the cross, I'm finished. When Jesus hung on the cross, he didn't say in angerness or in bitterness, you are finished. You are finished. Because of your sin and your guilt, that's not what he says. Actually, if you're alive today, if you woke up and you took a breath this morning, it means that Jesus is not done with you. That he's not done with you. That he still wants to do something in and through you. And maybe for some of us today, he wants to save and rescue you. And that's why you're here, or that's why you're tuning in online. The reason why Jesus says from the cross, it is finished, is because the work of salvation is done. It's done. We can't add anything to it, we just receive it. Our sins are finished. The debt of our sin has been paid. Our guilt and our condemnation is finished. Now, therefore, there is no condemnation for the one who is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because it is finished. The saving work of God is completed in Christ. Man, this should stir our hearts to come to him in prayer in our hardest of situations. Knowing that he is the God who rescues saves. It is finished. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for passages like this in Psalm 22 that prepare our hearts to pray. We thank you, Jesus, that you came to save us. And you didn't just come and pay the price for our sins, Lord. You taught us how we should live in our salvation. And we see that through the model prayer that you give us. Lord, in the midst of our suffering and pain, God, we come to you knowing that you are our God, and you are a God who opens wide your arms to both the rich and the poor, to those that are born and those who are not born yet, to the coming generation, Lord, salvation is there because of what you have done, because of the work that you finished on the cross. So that's where our hope rests. That's where our prayers run to. That's where our praises stem from. God, we come to you, the one who is worthy of all worship. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand now. Let's respond to this good news of Jesus Christ.